Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a returning guest to the podcast, Anne Richardson of Crunch Nutrition. Now, Anne is soon to become the eating disorder nutritionist. So if you want to go and check her out, that will be her website very shortly. But if you want to go and look today, she's probably still up there as Crunch Nutrition. Also, if you want to check her out on Instagram, she is at the eating disorder nutritionist. Anne is a registered nutritional therapist and she blends nutrition with cognitive behavior therapy to help people have a better relationship with food and their bodies. Anne has a special interest in disordered eating, having walked her own eating disorder recovery journey. And she works with people who restrict physically and or mentally. And this can mean people suffering from anorexia, orthorexia, OSFED and also bulimia. Anne grew up in France and has a passion for food and is dedicated to helping people become more relaxed with their diets. She believes that although nutrition is a science, we shouldn't eat scientifically And she believes that many of us have lost our way with food and that this is impacting us not only on our physical health, but also our mental well-being too. Anne is a member of the British Association for Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine, and she is also registered with the Complementary and Natural Healthcare Council. In our conversation today, Anne is going to talk recovery tips and skills, particularly if you're trying to manage weight restoration and heal. She's also going to explore the use of words in relation to food, as words have power and the language that we use around food has the potential to help or hinder us. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Anne today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast today. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so Anne, I can't remember if this is your third or fourth recording. I think it's my fourth, actually, because I was looking at it the other day. I think it's my fourth. All oh, right, brilliant. Yeah, well, good to have you back. And it's for a reason, I guess, that you are here for a fourth occasion. <laughs> so, yeah. Anne, for people that don't know you, um, could you introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Okay, yeah, sure. So, my name is Anne Richardson, and I'm a registered nutritionist. And I only see people with eating disorders or disordered eating. I tend to see people who restrict more than people who binge. Although I do see people with bulimia as well, but I guess a lot of my clients could be categorized into sort of anorexia, orthorexia, those kinds of people. Okay, no, thank you, Anne. And I'm aware as well that you are going through a rebrand or a change of name. Is that right? Could you tell us a bit more? I know, it's, a, it's not quite a menopause, but it feels like it. It's like a big change. <laughs> Yes, so I've been a nutritionist for more than 10 years. And when I started, I was very much a generalist. I needed to find a name for myself. And I decided to call myself Crunch Nutrition because there was a reason for this. I actually, weirdly, I was quite interested in sports nutrition and it seemed to make sense, the whole crunch thing. And also I was interested in food. I've always been interested in food. And I thought maybe at some point I would have a cafe and crunch seemed to be quite cool. But I then sort of changed my angle in my clinic and then I worked more and more in eating disorders and crunch nutrition didn't seem to reflect my identity as a practitioner anymore. So I decided to rebrand and I'm in the process of doing that now. And so my new name is actually really similar to yours. I meant to say that. So you're the eating disorder therapist and I have become the eating disorder nutritionist. 
I think a bit easier for people to find me now. You know, my name, what it is, you know, eating disorder and nutritionist. I'm not a general nutritionist and I'm not a therapist. I am very much a nutritionist. So, yeah, that's me. My website isn't quite ready yet, but it will be in a week or so. Okay, thanks for sharing that, Anne. And it sounds very exciting, this new (laughs) rebrand. Yeah, I think it's timely. It's uh, it feels like the right time. Yeah. And do you still have any sort of dreams of opening a cafe or is that gone by the wayside now? I don't know. I don't know. I think things change. What I've realised while getting older is that things are always in a constant flux and things change. I'm always, always interested in food. Having a cafe, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of hard work, to be honest. I think if I won the lottery, I probably would retrain and become a baker, which was my first idea before becoming a nutritionist. But no, I don't think it's totally on the cards, but you never know. You never know. But I still bake at home. I still love doing that. So I don't know. But I think food is a really big part of my identity and also with what I'm doing with my clients, clearly food is important. And we talk a lot about cooking and about baking and about doing cafes with people. So there is that element somewhere, but maybe not professionally. Yeah, no, sure. I know you still grew up in France and you do have a real love and passion for food. So could you just tell us a little bit as well about your sort of philosophy and how you approach working with your clients? Because I think you have quite a unique way of working, which really helps people to develop that sort of healthy relationship with food again. I don't know if I'm unique, but I suppose my philosophy is, I always say, I always joke with people. I say to people with me, it's never going to be black or white. You do have to embrace the 50 shades of grey. And I guess I sit in the middle I always feel like I'm a bad nutritionist or not your regular nutritionist because I don't just eat kale and and seeds. I'm not saying that we should just eat lots and lots of sugar all the time either. I'm kind of in the middle. I think food is there to fuel the body, to nourish the body. And we do have to pay attention to that. But I also really strongly believe that food is, is also pleasure and it's fun, it's celebratory and it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, before talking to you, I was having a coffee, you know, one of those little Freddo, you know, the chocolate bars. A lot of nutritionists wouldn't have that or even admit it on a podcast. But I just go, you know, this is the way we go. That's what I like. And I don't really see a problem with that. So that's kind of my philosophy that anything goes. Yeah, provided you like it, it's fine. Obviously, you know, I will teach people, you know, the protein, the carbohydrate and all that and the polyunsaturated fat. But there is more to life than that. And I cook with white flour. You know, tomorrow is pancake day. You know, there's going to be white flour in my house and normal sugar and cream. And I really don't see a problem with that. You're definitely not going to see a pancake made with banana and an egg, which is not a pancake. It's eggy, eggy banana at best. That's kind of my philosophy. (laughs) Thank you, Anne. So I know one of the things that we were going to talk about today, and I know you have a particular interest in the use of words generally and sort of metaphor and language, etc. I know from our previous conversations, but you're going to talk a bit about the use of our language and words in relation to food and sometimes perhaps how this can help or hinder us. So could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I wanted to talk about language, but in relation to eating psychology, eating disorders and recovery, I'm fascinated by languages and by words in general. I don't know if it's because I'm bilingual or whether I'm bilingual because I love words, but I've studied several languages. Um, I'm fluent in French and, and English, and I found it fascinating how we use words and how we can really have an impact on our thoughts. And I'm actually also studying 
CBT at the moment. And it's quite clear with CBT that, you know, the way we speak can shape our thoughts and the way we think then impacts on our feelings and sometimes even bodily sensations, which can then further impact on our thinking process. So that's what I'm interested in. And especially because I see that a lot with people that they use words which are actually counterintuitive when it comes to recovery. It makes things a lot worse. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. And I guess a lot of the language we use, it's quite sort of unconscious, isn't it? We may never stop and question what we're saying. Yeah, that's right. We just say it either because we've heard it or because we've said it for so long, it becomes a thing. But the brain is always listening and then it becomes something much bigger in our heads. And I think it can be damaging. So could you give some examples maybe of when we could be using language which may be really unhelpful in eating disorder recovery? Yeah, sure. My favourite one, and my clients, if they're listening, they will laugh because at some point I must have talked to them about it. It's people saying a whole banana. I've eaten a whole banana. And I just go, how big was that banana? Because by the sound of it, it was massive. You know, when you say a whole of something, it sort of implies that it's something massive and that it's something that maybe you should only eat a little bit of. When actually a banana comes as one, it comes as a banana with its own little envelope. And a banana is one. You don't need to say a whole banana. You could say a whole pineapple because a pineapple is quite a lot bigger than a banana. Or you could say a whole cake. That would make sense because normally we eat a slice of cake or a quarter of pineapple or something like that. But bananas, if you say a whole banana, you are essentially implying that you should not be having a banana. You should just be having, I don't know, half or a quarter. And therefore, if I said to people, you have a banana, they go, oh my goodness, I've had a whole banana and it really messes with their heads. And I find a lot of people say that. Mm, yeah, no, really interesting. It's a funny thing, the banana thing, isn't it? Because I know for myself personally, I don't think I've ever eaten just half a banana in my life. <laughs> like, I think I, I missed have. <laughs> I, think I, I have, missed... <laughs> I have. <laughs> you had in the Definitely. past, yeah. But no, I get mm-hmm. it though, like particularly with the whole wellness trend, I guess, a whole banana was just too much, I guess. But yeah, no, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because of, yeah, it's kind of implying in a way that we've done something wrong, that we've overeaten, that we've eaten this like yeah. really, really big amount. I've got lots of examples, but another one that I quite like is telling you about it earlier. It's fried eggs. People freak out about fried eggs. And I think it's just because of the name fried egg. It implies that it's been fried. And obviously we have thoughts about frying in terms of calories, in terms of health. But a fried egg is not really fried. I mean, I think in the past, they were sort of almost shallow fried. They were never deep fried. I mean, I'm sure someone somewhere deep fries eggs, but it's not really common. I think in the past, they were shallow frying eggs. And I remember my mother-in-law doing it, actually. But it wasn't even like that bad. But she was basically sort of putting the egg in quite hot oil and then basting the egg with the oil. And that was her way of doing fried eggs. But what interests me is that most people don't do it like that. And in France, a fried egg is not called a fried egg. A fried egg is called an oeuf au plat, which actually means nothing, really. <laughs> Makes no sense. Mm. But it means an egg on a dish, basically. It's almost saying a flat egg on a dish, plat is dish. And I think because we call it an oeuf au plat, it doesn't sound nearly as frightening as a fried egg. And I reckon... Well, actually, I know my French clients don't struggle with fried eggs nearly as much as my English clients because it has a different name, but it's exactly the same thing. 
in fact, the fried eggs, if you look at just purely nutrition, maybe it's cooked in oil, but the, the egg white is actually not very porous because it's mostly protein. Egg white is one of those things that's 100% protein. And so it's actually quite difficult for that pure protein to absorb the oil. So when you have a fried egg, yes, it is essentially cooked in oil or, you know, even a lot of oil, but the egg white hasn't absorbed that much oil, whereas you can have, and I don't want to put people off scrambled eggs, but you could have scrambled eggs, which don't look particularly greasy or fattening, but they could be cooked in loads and loads and loads of butter and loads of cream. And it could be actually higher in calories than a fried egg, but it sounds okay because it's just scrambled. Mm, Doesn't make sense? Very interesting, isn't it? And I guess it just really shows that perhaps in British culture as well, particularly like all those associations we'd have with the word fried, like maybe thinking it's greasy or unhealthy, something to be avoided, how we can quickly make those judgments then and then perhaps avoid something like a fried egg, which could be a really kind of healthy, great choice in terms of on your eating disorder recovery journey. Yeah, it's a great source of nutrition. It's a cheap source of protein. And, you know, these days, and that's pretty important. You know, we do need protein and, you know, everything costs so much. Eggs are quite a good bet when you're shopping. And I know we go through quite a lot of eggs in my house. Mm, yeah, no, me too, actually. It's actually making me want to start having fried eggs again, actually, because I went through a phase of having fried eggs on toast for lunch for, like, a long uh-huh. time. I'm actually more into scrambled at the moment. I just go through phases. I think I might try fried eggs again just to switch it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of eggs. You can have them in so many different ways. I love them in every way, I think. There isn't, maybe not raw, I probably wouldn't eat them raw, but I mean, the yolk is <laughs> fine, but I know, otherwise, no. But otherwise, yeah, I have eggs all the time. I probably have eggs, not quite every day, but almost mm, yeah. in one shape or another. So what else, Anne? Like, I know we're talking a bit before we came on the call about the sort of phrase guilty pleasure. And could you say a bit more about that? Because I think that's something we hear on a lot of people's lips a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, guilty pleasure is something we hear a lot around celebrations at like Christmas, birthdays or, you know, weekends. I don't like it because it implies that pain almost should be the norm and that almost like pleasure is sinful. And if you have something that is pleasurable, potentially you've done something bad or you've eaten something that is too good. You know the phrase, it's too good to be true. If you apply that to food, people often say that. They say, oh, you know, it tastes so good, it must be really bad for you. I think that this is slightly murky water that we're getting into when people start saying those kinds of things. There are lots of things that you could really enjoy that are actually super nutritious. I mean, I love, it sounds really weird, I do love Brussels sprouts. I love avocado on toast. There's nothing to be guilty about. But even if it was Nutella on toast, which is not seen as nutritious, what would I be guilty about if I had Nutella on toast? I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed the bank. I've just eaten some chocolate spread. Even if I had eaten a whole jar of chocolate spread, which is not something I would advocate necessarily, but does it warrant a strong feeling such as guilt? I don't think so. So if someone's um, eating their Nutella on toast and maybe the instant thought is, oh, this is a guilty pleasure, like what would be a way to start to think about that differently, I guess, and to maybe change the language? I would just get rid of guilty, first of all. I would just say it's a pleasure. It's really lovely. It's so yummy. I would get rid of guilty. And I often talk to people about those kinds of food, maybe not necessarily Nutella on toast, but things like donuts or chocolate bars. 
I don't call them treats because that's another one that I don't love because it sort of implies that we should only have it now and again or that we've done something and that means that we can have the donut. So I don't like that. I call those foods fun foods. It's the kind of foods that we just eat for fun. I'm not going to be lying to you and say that we eat donuts because they're very good for us and they're full of protein and great source of fiber. That is not true. We eat them because we find them delicious and that's okay. Now, should we be eating donuts every day or the whole box of Krispy Kreme? No, we should have those kinds of foods in a more occasional manner. And I often explain to people... Imagine it's like life, basically. We go to work and we also have weekends where we have more fun. And most of us, hopefully, you have a job that you like, but some people don't like maybe their jobs or or they don't love their jobs as much as they love watching Netflix, let's say. So you go to work and it feels maybe more like a chore. And I just go, you know, this is you eating the protein and the broccoli. You know, you don't test it, but really you'd rather be eating donuts. We don't detest going to work, but we'd rather be watching Netflix. The best way, I think, for me is to balance Netflix and sort of going to work and putting the bins out and going to parents' evening, all the things that we might not love doing. If we just go to work and put the bins out and do our tax returns and do all the boring stuff, potentially, our life is going to be a little bit dire, okay? It's not going Mm -hmm. to be fun. At the same time, if we only ever watch Netflix and pick our noses, you know, we're not going to achieve much. And perhaps our life is not going to be as good either or that great either. And it's kind of the same with food. You know, if we just eat the broccoli and the protein, the chicken, the broccoli and the sweet potato, you know, like we're going to orthorexic sort of mode. And yes, maybe we're going to have a very healthy body, but our mind is not going to be particularly healthy because we're just going to be freaking out about our donuts. Conversely, I'm not saying to people you should only be eating donuts because donuts are fine. Because we do know that if you just eat too many of those fun foods, you potentially could have some health problems at some point, you know, if you do that for too long. So the idea is to balance fun and things that you have to do. So it's the things that I want to do and the things that I should be doing. Once you balance those, then you're fine. So You know, a donut or Nutella on toast isn't something bad. You haven't done anything bad. It's just you watching a little mini series of Netflix and, I don't know, Desperate Housewife or stuff. It's not going to do a lot for your brain cells, but if it's going to relax you and make you laugh, who am I to say you should be watching that series? Mm. Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it, Anne. And Mm. one thing I really like that you mentioned as well in your description there was just recognizing that, yeah, if you just did eat broccoli and chicken and sweet potato or whatever anyone would deem to be like super healthy, I don't know. You know, you may be like physically really healthy, but of course, like health is about a healthy mind as well, isn't it? And if we are so strict and almost a bit orthorexic, we actually become very neurotic, which actually isn't great for health, is it? You know, promotes a lot of anxiety, stress. It's not great being in our minds, is it, when we are kind of so strict with ourselves? Yeah, totally. And everyone who comes to see me says, you know, I want to be really healthy. I mean, good. I want you to be really healthy as well. But if you cut out all sugar, all fat and all of those fun foods, you're not going to be healthy. And proof is that you've come to speak to me. If you were absolutely healthy, you wouldn't be speaking to me. You would never want to speak to me. I mean, it's better if you're my friend, but you know, you've come to me for a reason. It's because your mind isn't really healthy. 
And as much as I'm not a therapist, I'm here to sort of soften the edges when it comes to food so that you just go, okay, well, I've eaten the donut, big deal. It was yummy and that's just what it is. It's not a meal, but it was fine to have. It's like me having eaten the Freddo. The Freddo did nothing for my nutrition, but, you know, I really enjoyed the Freddo. It was nice and it made me happy and, you know, and I've moved on. So, Anne, before we move on to just sort of talk a bit more about some of the work that you do in your therapy room, are there any other sort of examples that you wanted to share that particularly stand out from your client work in relation to language and food? Well, I've got like many hours worth of examples, but I don't have hours. I'm going to pick some. Hang on. Two that don't mind is skinny lattes and full-fat yogurts. A skinny latte annoys me because... It implies that if you're not having that latte, you're having a fattening latte, right? If it's not skinny, it's fat. So if you're having a regular latte, you're having a fattening latte, which is inaccurate. It's not right. Of course, the regular latte would have more calories than the skinny latte. It implies, the word skinny implies that the regular one is fattening. That is problematic. And full fat yogurt is a little bit the same. It's just the word full fat. Oh, I'm having full fat yogurt. That's like, I can't have full fat yogurt. Full fat implies that it's full of fat. It's not full of fat. Full fat yogurt only contains about 5% fat. If you flip it, you could also say, I'm having 95% fat free yogurt, which somehow sounds better. So interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> a short advertisement break. Friends, does it seem like I'm okay until I'm stressed, then I can't stop eating? Am I ever going to stop binging? I just can't slow down or relax. I can't tell my hunger and fullness, even though I think I'm eating enough. I'm fine with food till something happens, and then I'm restricting or emotional eating or not buying groceries again. I surround myself with body positive pictures, wearing more comfortable clothes, but I still can't stand my body and I fear gaining weight. You don't lack knowledge. You might just not have felt a sense of safety inside you for recovery efforts to fully land. This means you might be living in chronic fight, flight, freeze or please, and you need new experiences of the threat responses softening that cause the eating and body image issues in the first place so the recovery can actually stick. If you're seeking the missing piece in your food, weight and health recovery journey, consider trauma-informed nutrition counselling with Tracy Brown and Associates. Tracy can be reached at www.tracybrownrd.com slash get hyphen started. That's www.tracybrownrd.com slash get hyphen started to learn how to shift what has been too much or not enough inside for food to feel easy. And I often think about that when people talk about full-fat Coke. It's interesting to me, and it, I think it illustrates really well that full-fat yogurt means, in a way, nothing, because there is no fat in full-fat Coke. What it means, potentially, is what it means is that it's potentially fattening because it contains sugar as opposed to sweeteners. So full-fat actually doesn't mean full of fat, but it means it's going to make you fat. That's how we use it. It's inaccurate because regular yogurt or full-fat yogurt is a really good source of protein. It's a good source, depending on which one it is. It is a source of fat, but we also need fat. And, and it's not that high in fat. There are some things which are higher in fat. I mean, avocado is going to be higher in fat than full-fat yogurt. 
Mm. I don't yeah. want to put anyone off avocados. But. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like I like the way you're saying, you can be saying it's 95% fat free or something for the yogurt. It's so interesting. We have to be so careful, don't we? These assumptions that we're making around food. Yeah, and I think it's also helpful when you hear someone in your family say those words. It's interesting to have a conversation with them about it and to pick them up on that and say, well, actually, did you know that it's only 95%? Well, it's only 5%. It only contains 5% fat, which means that it's 95% fat-free. Why don't we just say that? Or if someone says, oh, you know, I'm having, always is a bit of a guilty pleasure. You go, well, actually, just call it pleasure because there's nothing to be guilty about. It's quite good to sort of pick people up on those things so that actually almost forces you to change your own language. Yeah, no, that's a great point, actually, because I guess we're talking about this in eating disorder recovery. But of course, in the wider culture, people are saying these things all the time, aren't they? And someone who's working on their eating disorder recovery may be getting triggered by some of these comments regularly. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in France, I had a fear of pastry. And I remember going into um, a bakery and ordering all Someone in front of me ordered a pound of chocolate and someone made a comment almost like one minute on the lips, you know, a lifetime on the head or something. And I'm being really angry because I was trying really hard to eat that bloody pastry. But I was really angry and just a little comment like that could throw you off. So we have to be super careful about what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And it just shows, doesn't it, the value of really staying focused in your own recovery lane and you know having to regularly do that kind of inner work and watch your own language and what I love Mm. what you're saying as well Anne is actually when people around you say things to just kindly pick them up on it I guess isn't it and actually educating them as well because we're all just sort of spewing stuff out unconsciously aren't we yeah yeah, I do that totally with my family when they say things I don't really have an example on top of my head but I would pick them up on things that they might have heard at school and I just go, well, actually, that's not quite right. And I would do it as well when it comes to body image. I find that people sometimes judge others, you know, without meaning it to be nasty, but sometimes it really is. And you could be watching, I don't know, Strictly Come Dancing and you watch someone and you go, oh, you know, she's let herself go. And little comments like that aren't helpful because I think if we naturally do that to others, even though it's not to their faces, It's also training us to do it to ourselves, whereas actually if we recognise that we do it to others and if we stop ourselves from from saying those things, then we're much better equipped to stopping ourselves from being nasty to you about our own body, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah, no, it's very true, isn't it? The things that come up for us all individually when we're kind of judging others We will be doing that to ourselves, won't we? Even if it's on an unconscious basis, we might not be realising. But if we tend to be critical of others, we tend to be critical of ourselves. It's almost like holding a mirror up, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I find that I, because obviously I am much, much better and it's my job. I'm very aware of those things. But sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, my God, what's happened to your face? You're so old now. And you're like, you're suddenly grey and look at your wrinkles and you look awful. And then... I kind of catch myself going, what are you doing? You're horrible. And I go, no, you're fine. Oh, yeah, you're older because you are older. And actually, you're fine. I go, yeah, grey hair, I'm fine. And then I flip it. And I go, no, we're not doing that. Thank you very much, Brain, but I don't have time for this today. Let's move on. We're not doing it. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> so, Anne, while I've got you on the podcast, can I just change tack 
slightly and ask, get a bit of your expertise. Okay, brilliant. I'm just thinking like, I know that when you're working with your clients, you're often supporting them with weight restoration, trying to increase what they're eating, etc. And I know, and many of my clients working with at the moment that are struggling with this, that, you know, really genuinely are kind of want to kind of gain weight, want to improve their own quality of life, want to eat a greater variety of foods. When it comes to putting that into practice, they will often do quite a lot of sort of toe dipping, you know, maybe like increasing a little bit here, a little bit there. Or if they do make an active increase, they might compensate then by like missing food later or over exercising. And I'm saying all this with compassion because of these changes are really, really hard to make. But I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. like, how do you really support someone to make those very brave but scary steps that they need to do in their recovery? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, I call it a cha-cha, you know, when we're going like forward, back, forward, back. And we say to, I say to people, OK, we're just cha-chaing here. We're not actually moving at all. We're just standing still. And I say that again with compassion. First of all, I think what I say to people is that I will allow the cha-cha for a little bit, because I think when people start recovery, they have to get used to the process, they have to get used to me. And so I think it's not unreasonable to dance the cha-cha for a while. And actually, I'm only seeing people now for six months. I said to people, we're going to commit to speak to each other for six months because I'm allowing at least a month or a month and a half of cha-cha when we're just sort of, we are making progress, but we are going back and forth because I think it's needed. I agree, there is a danger of just toe dipping and actually never going into the water. And we have to be careful. It's a bit like a tightrope. You want to go slowly so that people actually don't freak out about making changes, but you don't want to go too fast. You don't want to go too slowly because otherwise we don't move at all. But if you go too fast, people get scared. And I find that sometimes, and that's not a criticism at all, but when people are with the NHS, they get given a plan and they go, you know, the plan goes, you you need to eat this. Three meals, three snacks, puddings, blah, 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 custard, rice pudding. And that's really scary for people. So that can actually put them off eating at all. But conversely, if I'm going, oh, it's okay, you can just have this vegan high-fiber energy bar for your breakfast. And if I allow that for too long, we're not going to make any progress. And potentially there is a risk of me sort of colluding with eating disorder at that point. So I have to allow a bit of cha-cha and then be a bit of a tough cookie. And I did that last week with someone. I went, look, this is not good. I mean, no, I didn't say not good. I said, look, you know, the little task I gave you, you haven't done any of those. And, you know, she's a lovely girl and she has done a lot, made a lot of progress. But I said, look, I think I need to push you and I'm going to push you a bit more this time. So we're going to do this, we're going to do that, then we're going to do that. And I'm expecting those things to be done. And I'm doing it because otherwise you're not going to recover. My job is to make you recover. So I'm going to push you. And I always say to people at the start, I'm quite nice. I like to think that I'm friendly, but I don't want to be your friend. And you are going to find me annoying. Chances are you are going to cry at some point because we can't just have a nice time. If you just have a nice time, probably we're not going to go anywhere. So when people just find me really annoying and not really annoying, but annoying. And when they cry, usually I kind of know that we are talking about something that actually has hit a nerve and something that needed to be worked on. So it's a balance between the two. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And do you have any sort of skills or tips that you support people with to manage some of these fears? Because I guess 
when you're trying a new food or you're increasing your portion size or something, you know, people feel incredibly anxious, don't they? You know, what are your sort of top tips for supporting someone navigating their way through that? I would do it on a case by case. I think anxiety can present itself quite differently depending on the person. Anorexia recovery, I often recommend that people yeah, watch TV or something like that, have a screen while they're eating. I know it's completely against what most nutritionists would say, but I find that actually when you're not thinking about the food, it's much easier to actually eat the food. So that's a really good sort of little tip, I think, sort of distract by watching something and then distract after eating because the guilt comes after. So you could go for a gentle walk, nothing too strenuous, you know, with your family or spend some time with a pet. Those kinds of things do help. Another tactic, I do like to use jokes and humour quite a lot because I think it's quite good at diffusing anxiety. In our sessions, we do joke quite a bit and I make fun sometimes of their eating. I hope my client won't mind, but today I was reviewing food diaries and I was looking at a client and her lunch was really small and I said, you know, where's the rest of your lunch gone? And it was a little bit of a joke. I was kind of saying, look, this isn't quite right. And I find that by joking a little bit about the condition, about food, we can actually make some progress. But that's quite personal. I don't know if people would agree, but I find it helps quite well with my clients. Yeah, sure. And it sounds like um, you take a very sort of personalised approach, don't you? And I guess for some people, humour is probably like massively helpful. I think it would be for me if I was your client. (laughs) But yeah, you know, that's not for everyone. But I think being able to kind of engage with humour sometimes, it can be a great sort of stress reliever, can't it? And sort of distract away from the anxiety as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just on that note, I guess, you know, there are lots of therapists, lots of people to help during your recovery. And I think it's also really important that you find the right person. I'm clearly not going to be the person for everyone. I think my approach, my metaphors, my love of words, my humor would probably be really annoying for some people. So I'm not going to be their therapist, but I might suit other people. And I think it's good if you are listening to this and you're thinking, I don't know who to choose. You know, you need to feel really comfortable with them and you need to think, I kind of click with that person. If not, just find someone else. It's not personal. They won't mind, but find a person that matches who you are, I think. Yeah, and it's so true. The relationship is key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So Anne, one more question I wanted to ask you is, I know many people when they're on a weight restoration journey are perhaps told, again, I don't want to kind of like knock the NHS here because I do still work for the NHS. (laughs) I'm just wondering sometimes when people get given like a specific BMI and perhaps that's really helpful actually at the time because of it gives a goal that perhaps feels more manageable and is a really helpful stepping stone in recovery. But maybe that BMI is too low for their body to be in its kind of happy place. But then people get really stuck because they feel they can't go over that BMI because they all wait because they were told that that was their goal. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that, because I know there's a few of my clients that are sort of struggling with that at the moment. Yeah, it's actually really, really common. And again, I do make a joke about it, but often I ask people, you know, what weight would you like to be? And usually the weight corresponds to 18.5 BMI. It's just healthy, but not very high. And I think people just feel like if they are just at 18.5, they are going to be fine. This is it. You know, they're in a healthy range. They don't need to do anything. And it's very much like they're holding on to the eating disorder. 
it's saying I'm okay to be working on this. I'm okay to be recovered, but I don't really want to recover fully. I just still want to hang on to my eating disorder a little bit. There is a bit of that. Recently, I said to a client who is around 18.5, and I'm just starting with her. I said, you are in a healthy range, but I question whether that is healthy for you. Realistically, very few people will naturally sit at 18.5 BMI. Most people will be somewhere in the middle. And it's funny how everyone wants to be around 18.5, but no one ever wants to be at 24.9, which is, you know, that is still in the healthy range. But if you are around that, people go, no, that's it. You know, I'm really too big. So I want you to consider the BMI as, you know, a scale, an index. That's what it is, body mass index. And you have ranges and the healthy range is between 18.5 and 24.9. And depending on who we are, we are going to naturally sit somewhere in that range. I often say to people, we're like dogs. We're all the same species, but we're not the same breed. And if you are, let's say, a beagle, you can't weigh the same as a chihuahua. And you could try and be the same weight as a chihuahua and be 18.5, but you're not going to be a healthy beagle. You're just going to be a really starved beagle. And some people are naturally sunburned out and they are going to be bigger. It doesn't mean that they are fat. It just means that they are bigger dogs or bigger people. So that's my way of looking at it. And but you're quite right that being given a target is dangerous. It can be really helpful to get people there. We have to explain to people that targets are always moving, not forever, because at some point you are going to hit a weight that is biologically appropriate for you. And then we're not saying that you should keep on gaining weight forever until you die, because otherwise you know you would be gaining weight all the time, and that's not quite right. But Targets are often moving, and that's why it's good to make them more nebulous. Sometimes instead of going with a weight, we could just have more like a concept. You know, I will be recovered when my period starts again for a woman or when I'm not thinking about food all the time. We have to also be really careful with teenagers. I see a lot of teenagers and they get given a target, but that was the target for when they were 14 years old and then they are now 16, that cannot be the same target or that cannot be aiming for the same weight because chances are the person has grown so there is more of them that there was when they were 14 years old. And so we need to account for that growth as well. So the person needs to weigh more. So targets can be very, very dangerous, I think, with teenagers. And I like to just look at the growth chart if someone comes to me and we look at their red books and they were always on the 50th centile since being a baby and now they're on the 25th centile, I know that they are not probably where they should be, even though they might be okay in terms of BMI. We need to get them a bit higher for their bodies. But at the same time, someone could be on the 75th centile or someone could be on the 50th centile, but always sat on the 75th centile naturally. That would make them underweight as well for who they are. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. And I think it's really helpful to have those personalized markers of rather than focusing on a number, but thinking like what would indicate that my body is healthy. So, for example, like not being preoccupied with food, if you're female, Mm -hmm. your menstrual period returning, that just sounds so much more valuable, doesn't it, than getting fixated on a number which could or could not be helpful, really. 
Yeah, yeah, we can get fixated. And as we know, the moment we get fixated on something, it gets quite complicated. Well, Anne, I could really talk to you all day. So I think you're probably going to have to come back at some point and do a fifth episode. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but, I would be you know. happy to do that. I could talk <laughs> for England and France together. So, yeah. <laughs> so Anne, where can people find you if they want to find out more about the work you do? Okay, well, at the moment, it's a bit complicated. It's not complicated, but it's a bit strange because, as I said, I'm transitioning. At the moment, on Instagram, which is sort of where I live, I am the eating disorder nutritionist, so Anne Richardson. But my website is still Crunch Nutrition, so crunchnutrition.co.uk. Having said that, in a week or two, it will hopefully become the eating disorder nutritionist.co.uk. So... You can find me at either Contribution or the Eating Disorder Nutritionist. But on Instagram, I'm already, and on Facebook, I'm already the Eating Disorder Nutritionist. Okay, lovely. And I should make sure all of those details are in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Okay, and well, I'd like to just really thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom. Really appreciate it so much. Um, I think so much value for the listeners. And yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. I love doing the podcast with you. So I'll be back. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Anne's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you like this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.